Welcome to the second episode of Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Craig Andera. Craig, would you mind telling the people listening a little bit about yourself? Sure, don't mind at all. I am a developer. I work for a company called Cognitech that some people might know as Relevance. We were Relevance until September when we merged with another very small company and became Cognitech. We do a lot of closure work. We're a, we're a combination consulting and product company. One of our products is uh, Datomic that people might have heard of. I've been doing closure in my consulting work for... Well, I mean, I've been there for three years, almost, and I've been doing closure for the bulk of that and definitely for the last two years. So I guess you could say I am a uh, functional geek. <laughs> so I've listened to your podcast, which you also do, which is the Think Relevance podcast, now known as the Cognicast. That's right, yep. And you had in a couple episodes where you were the guest on it, one with Justin being the host and one mm-hmm. that was a crossover episode with Mostly Lazy. That's right, yeah, Chaz Emmerich's podcast. So on those, you kind of mentioned you have a background in the Microsoft.NET ecosystem. That's right, yeah. And I've had a background with .NET for about 10 years and been making the playground of Clojure and trying to pick up more functional languages. So I was wondering if you'd mind kind of going in a little bit about that transition between .NET and C Sharp to going into Clojure. And- sure. So... Like you, I was a .NET programmer for quite a while. I think I first got exposed to it in 2000. I was working at a company called Developmentor, which is a training company. And one of the guys that, that was the founder of the company, a guy named Don Box, came back and he had seen he had gotten early access and permission to show us this, this really cool new technology that was coming out of uh, Microsoft. It was called .NET. And of course, you know, most of us were C++ programmers and we were like, whoa, virtual machine, no memory management, you know, all this cool stuff. Of course, that stuff had been around in the Java world, but I hadn't been exposed to that at all. So I spent the next mm, 10 years doing C-sharp, and I was lucky in that I was able to, generally speaking, be working on the very bleeding edge of whatever version of the .NET stuff was out. And in fact, for a good chunk of that 10 years, the work I was doing was for Microsoft, where we were actually told we had to use you know, the beta of .NET or the alpha of .NET 4 or whatever the most current thing was because they, they had a policy of using their own products previous to release. They called it uh, eating your own dog food or dog fooding, which I think was a good practice. But of course, when you're using the alpha version of you know, an IDE like Visual Studio, it can occasionally be somewhat painful. But it, the result of that process was that I was constantly learning the newest version of C-sharp, like I never really said, okay, I'm just going to stay on 2.0 and I'm going to skip 3.5. And so I, I kind of had this progression of language features that were coming into C-sharp. And I had done a little bit of Lisp in college. I went to MIT and back in those days, <laughs> which really was back in those days at this point, uh, Scheme was a big language that they were using there. And so I had some exposure to a, to a Lisp. And like a lot of people, I kind of keep my ear to the ground, and I was somewhat aware of other languages, not as much as I should have been, but somewhat. And so as these language features would come in, I'd be like, oh yeah, I, I think I recognize, this is kind of like something that Common Lisp has, or I kind of recall that from, from Scheme. And, and at some point, a combination of sort of technology fatigue, just having done the same thing for almost 10 years at that point, and a realization that as an independent contractor, which I was, if I wanted to kind of up my game 
and I was seeing all these new language features that when I would use them, I would really like, you know, anonymous functions, lambdas, you know, in uh, the link stuff in, uh, in C Sharp and whatever version that was, I forget now. But I would see that stuff, and I would go, oh, well, if, if, if every time I see one of these new features, it's something that already exists in another language, maybe I should be looking out for another language that I can go and learn, and then I'll already know all the features. And so when the next thing comes out, I'll be like, yep, I got it. I know how to use that in my work already, and it would be a, a way to up my game. But during that process, so how did that work out? Well, I, I, the first thing I looked at was Common Lisp, because that was just the one that was on my radar I started playing with it, and I was pretty happy. I mean, there's common language ob- object system, CLOS, which is very advanced uh, implementation of object-oriented ideas, and and will look pretty familiar to anybody that's spent time in Closure in the sense of having a lot of similarity to things like protocols and multi-methods and other other advanced OO techniques. I, I spent some time there, but right around that time was when was when Closure got announced, and it was kind of the perfect moment for me to become aware of it because I was dabbling with Lisps. I had a background in, you know, .NET, which, you know, Java and .NET are, are brother and sister cousins. I mean, they're, they're very closely related. And so here was a language that kind of offered a lot of interesting things and had this additional lure of, oh, well, it's really good at concurrency, which as a guy who had spent time building backend systems, you know, large-scale web services for the last whatever, eight, ten years before that, was very appealing. And so I kind of went over there and found it very, very, very appealing. Further, I was in the maybe somewhat unique position of when I had worked at Developmentor, the place where I was first exposed to .NET, I had actually worked with Stu Halloway and Justin Getland, who in the time between you know, me leaving Developmentor and the moment where I picked up Clojure, had founded Relevance. <laughs> so I was already friends with these guys, and Stu had written the one and only, at that time, existing closure book and was obviously closely working with Rich. So it's just this, this kind of storm of events swept me up and moved me along, and in 2010, I started contracting with what was then Relevance, and at the beginning of 2011, I started full-time and have not looked back. So that's the long version. <laughs> I was thinking of... Kind of, I kind of took some of the same track getting into familiar with anybody who's in the .NET space that hasn't yet made the full jump to functional programming. Link, which is the language integrated query, I believe is what it technically stands for, but it's essentially the map, reduce, filter, and all of those functions. And I noticed that and I started kind of clicking around the same time that I, was re- I had read Structured Interpretation of Computer Programs. And it was like, there's really something to this that makes it, that distills what you're trying to do down pretty well. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, structure and interpretation, computer programs, I just reread it recently. It was my textbook in college. I actually took the class from Jerry Sussman and, as an aside, later had Hal Abelson as a student when I was teaching a class for a developmenter, which was one of the most intimidating things that's happened to me in a long time. But the book is amazing. It's, everybody that is a computer programmer should definitely read it. And you can look at it and see a lot of those ideas in more advanced languages like Clojure in a way that's like, it's really impressive that those, the, the authors were able to see all that stuff coming, you know, essentially 30 years before it started to hit the mainstream to the extent that we can say the ideas have hit the mainstream. And ditto for a paper, by the way, called Out of the Tar Pit, which uh, I imagine a lot of people have read, but which I just read for the first time very recently. 
And there's just a lot of good stuff in there, very thought-provoking, very much speaks to the things that I saw, that I have seen as I've made the transition over to more powerful languages. So it's, it's, it's funny, you know, like these ideas are out there waiting for us all to discover. And when you do discover it, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting because it, it, you feel like, whoa, why didn't anybody tell me about this before? Especially since some of this stuff's been around since the 70s. But yeah, it's cool stuff. Yeah, it's amazing how much stuff we don't actually learn or if we kind of learn it going through a higher education program doesn't really sink in until you've had a number of years under your belt to fully appreciate what they're trying to get at on some of those functions. The Design Patterns book is another kind of concept with that where you read it not having done stuff at the beginning. You're like, what? I don't get this. And then after a while, you're like, oh, I okay, factory, that makes sense now. Yeah, that one's interesting. I mean, I read the Design Patterns book a while back, and my reaction to it was a little bit less uniformly positive. So to some extent, I, I, I remember reacting to that book, and it's been quite a while, so I either missed the point or maybe I'm misremembering it. But to some extent, I was like, okay, this is cool, I guess, but I don't really, it, it didn't seem as powerful as some of the stuff that comes out of like structure and interpretation or, um, or the ideas out of the tar pit. It was more like, yeah, here, here are some good ways to solve some problems, but, but not something that changed the way that I, that I think about software, if that makes sense. I guess what I would say is I should probably go back and at least skim the design patterns book because my recollection of it was that it was not in the same category of like a new way to think as stuff like out of the tar pit and structure and interpretation of computer programs. Yeah, and I'll agree with that. It was, I was kind of using that as the comparison of there's some of those other books where you don't really appreciate those concepts until you go back and reread them after some user experiences. I've, I would guess that's what you found with SICP. As you were forced to study it in college, that you probably didn't pull out all the details of it and appreciation that you did upon your second time rereading it recently. Is that right, right. No, you're totally right. Yeah, I see, I see your point now. You're, ab- you're absolutely correct. I mean, it, the, the second time through it it was it was really yeah yeah it was kind of like oh yeah that is totally right and i can and i know why that is now whereas the first time was more like oh this chapter so that i can learn x so that i can do the problem set or whatever but yeah that, that that's certainly true and so since you mentioned some scheme and common lisp what do you find for those who aren't familiar with closure and are kind of familiar with other lists some of the uh, nuances and commonalities between those two families and dialects of Lisp and the Clojure dialect. Well, I think one of the big things. So, I think you might want to make we might want to make those comparisons separately. And I am not this, the scheme I have done has been just primarily what I did in college. I did a bit more common Lisp. I've done a teeny tiny amount professionally and studied it a bit more. And so that's just more recent. I, the thing, if I, when I look at common Lisp, the thing that strikes me about it is that. It's not, it's not got the immutability by default situation that Clojure does. And that that's actually a really big deal. I mean, it's not that you can't do that in Common Lisp. I mean, like any Turing complete language can do anything, right? And, and Common, Li- Common Lisp is a very powerful language, so it's actually much more straightforward to do things like, you know, program uh, using immutability, leveraging immutability than it would be in, in other languages. But, but at the same time, there are kind of these garden paths that you get led down in various languages. You can write bad code in any language, but certain languages tend to make certain types of code easier to write. And I think that the, the paved path in Clojure is, is clearly along the road of immutability, whereas that's not really true in, in Common Lisp. 
I think there's a couple other things that apply both to Common Lisp and to Scheme. And by the way, I don't want to make any of this sound like I think that Clojure is the best tool, that it compares favorably in all dimensions, that, you know, this this is just kind of like, here's my experience, and I'm happy to flip it around and talk about the things that I think uh, Clojure could get from uh, from Scheme and from uh, and or from Common Lisp. In other words, these are a couple of things that I like better in Clojure, but that doesn't, I'm not trying to say it's all up better all around. It is my preferred language for a bunch of reasons. Anyway, so one of the things that I think you get in Clojure that you don't get in Common Lisp and in Scheme as much are the built-in data types, you know, sets, vectors, maps, like all of these things. Having reader syntax is really a big deal because that lets you express very succinctly the information in the program and get some of the same advantages that you get from the homoiconic nature of all of all of those lists, but for the data itself. So it, that just feels like an advantage. And I personally, this is an aesthetic judgment, I personally like that we then get to use those literal types in the code itself. In other words, having like a let binding be a vector instead of a list of lists, that to me reads a little bit cleaner, but I recognize that that's a subjective thing. And if I were a you know, programming common list more often, I would very quickly adjust to the alternate syntax. But it is something that I like. So those are a couple things, I think. Okay, yeah, I was kind of touching on someone who's played with Scheme and or common lists and kind of the difference that you might see if they were, if someone who's spent more time in those had decided to look into Clojure. But you've also done some Clojure script as well, correct? Yeah, a bit. I mean, that's, you know, the kind of the trifecta of technologies for, for us at uh, Cognitect is Clojure, ClojureScript, and Datomic. And of those three, ClojureScript is the one I've done the least. I just tend to spend less time on front-end stuff than I do on back-end stuff. And, of course, since ClojureScript is compiling to JavaScript, that, that I just spend less time there. But I have done, you know, production systems with it a bit, and I do, I do follow the developments in that space to some degree. From my limited experience with ClojureScript, that is Clojure on JavaScript, as you said, but it was a redone implementation. Yeah, so one of the philosophies that Clojure has is to embrace the host platform. Early on in Clojure's life, there, there was, I don't know if most people know this, but Clojure itself is actually Rich Hickey's fourth attempt at a hosted Lisp. Um, and I forget the names of the other ones, but Clojure is the one that kind of kind of stuck and at, along the way, at some point, there was an effort to have one of the versions run on both the CLR and the JVM. Yeah, and I, I think I remember. I remember that. And right. I was hoping I, that would take off. Being, <laughs> in the, being in the .NET world, it would be like, well, could we get Closure CLR? Right. Well, there is Closure CLR, but 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 the the important point is that Closure really does not attempt to hide the underlying platform and for for very good reason one one simple reason is you know performance if you want to have performance you have to be able to access the underlying platform and if it's locked away from you by the language you can't do that so you know interop is very very good in um in closure in the sense of being able to directly emit code that is identical when calling uh, java methods to what you would get if you wrote in in java and so closure script is similar in embracing the host platform right you have native access to JavaScript concepts. And so as a result, it is a, a different language, but, but only in the sense of you can't take this Java, uh, sorry, this ClojureScript code and compile it as if it were Clojure, right? You're going to run into things around interop and some extremely minor other syntactic differences. But, you know, it, it is 99% the same. Like, you're going to be able to read it. All the data types are the same. 
et cetera, et cetera. But, but, it, it, but yeah, it's, it is a different language if you want to be very, very precise about it, but for good reason. Again, like I say, so that you can have access, embrace the host platform, which has all sorts of benefits. So, yeah, I mean, another one big difference is that in ClojureScript, for example, there is an explicit compilation step. In other words, you write your, you write your Clojure code, and then you compile it, and that produces JavaScript. And the reason that's significant is things like eval, right? The ability to take a piece of code as a string and evaluate it into, at runtime, into whatever value it would have it does not exist in ClojureScript because there is a separate offline compilation step. Whereas in Clojure, we have the compiler accessible. We can take a string and turn it into, a, well, technically a data structure and turn it into a piece of Clojure code at runtime. Um, I, I, I don't think I've ever used eval in production code, but but it does point out that they are different. What have you found as some of the strategies? I don't know if you've gotten a chance to kind of mess with the different strategies and found some of the strategies for using Clojure and ClojureScript together to be able to do things like validations on the client and the server. Have you done things like, is that just kind of pull those common things out, that 99% into their namespaces with the 1% difference into a different namespaces in Clojure? Or are there other strategies around that? Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the nice things, one of the easy ways to integrate the, the two systems is to use Eden, the extensible data notation, which is a subset of Clojure's read syntax. And so it's got, you know, if you look at it, it looks like Clojure, but there's no behavior. Eden is about expressing data, not about writing code. And so there are a few things that aren't in, you know, full-on Clojure syntax that are that that sorry that are in Clojure syntax that aren't in Eden. And the nice thing though is that it's a very natural medium for expressing. It's kind of like the JSON of our world, right? It's you know JSON looks a lot like JavaScript. Eden looks a lot like Clojure, and as a result, it's a natural fit for passing data back and forth. And I think if you look at system design, one of the one of the tenets that makes sense to adhere to is that you know system boundaries should be defined by contracts about data, right? So it's true that you can have um, shared code and that if you know if you have a closed system where you know that the back end is written in closure and the front end is written in closure script and those are the only they they only talk to each other and only ever will then um, yeah you can leverage benefit and there are uh, techniques out there that I haven't used because my main use of closure script was before a lot of these were available where you can have a piece of code and say you know what this piece of code is using the I'm doing air quotes here. It's a podcast. I'm doing air quotes. The subset of closure and closure script that is common to both, because that's actually most of the language. You can take and say, oh, this thing actually is uh, is common to both, and you can set it up so that it gets compiled into your closure script and is also available in your in your closure code. And you can actually, if you're using Datomic, since Datomic supports database functions that are written in closure, you could have the same thing run in your database and use it for validations. I'm not convinced that that is something that you would automatically always want to do because I'm not convinced that those validations are identical across the various tiers. I think that there are different concerns, but the capability is there and it's not very hard to leverage if you do have a situation that warrants it. But I think the main thing is, again, like for me, like good system, and this is independent of language, is just having that, that boundary where there, you can define data. And Eden is nice because it's very rich. It's actually much richer than JavaScript it's even richer than XML, so it's a it's a very convenient format, and I think there are bindings in other languages for it as well. So you know, I don't know whether there's like maybe for example, if there's a Ruby library available, you could use it and get the benefits of it, even if you weren't using Closure anywhere in your system. So Eden's kind of a big deal for us. 
Yeah, I've seen it, and it seems a lot nicer than Jason, especially when you account for the fact that there are implicit types in Eden, as opposed to, I'm sending out down a date in JSON, and it's coming down as a string, and then i got to do a whole bunch of manipulation, or that date is coming down as an int in this case. Right, right. You're talking about reader literals, where you can indicate um, the semantics of data that are kind of a layer above the actual read syntax, as you say. This is a string, but you should really interpret it as a first name or as a date or whatever. Although there's a, yeah, so it's it's a cool thing. Yeah, the other thing I was kind of going for was the supposed holy grail of being able to write everything in one language and have it be client, server, backend, tiers, uh, database, which is one of the big pushes, it sounds like, for the Node system, whereas Clojure has Clojure, Clojure Script, and Clojure and Datomic, but wasn't sure about, even with that, the views of realistically hitting that Holy Grail and whether or not that's even a Holy Grail worth shooting for. I've done it. I mean, I've, I've written systems that use all three production systems, and it's pretty nice. <laughs> I mean, especially for me as a person who's not a front-end developer, Closure script was a much more comfortable environment for me than uh, JavaScript would have been. You know, that's specific to me, but I, I, I have done it and uh, and I quite enjoyed it. But I, you know, I think that one's one to be a little bit careful with because you know you start to it's it, I think it's somewhat dangerous to optimize for developer convenience. I think that's a, a good way to get into some trouble. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not a very global... And I'm not saying you're taking this position, but I think it's easy for, for us as an industry to take this position of, oh, yeah, we should do that because it's easier. And I'm, I suspect that many of your listeners will have heard Rich's Simple Made Easy talk. And, um, and I got to say, you know, having had the opportunity to work with him and with a lot of other very, very uh, smart people, some at Cognitech and some elsewhere, I'm really coming to, to value that, that ideal of of simplicity, even when it even when it is at the expense of easy. Yeah, that's I I saw that talk and I love that talk and now it's I try and at least technically I try and differentiate the two of simple and easy, starting to spread towards familial conversations as well. But I try I try and hold that <laughs> back to the extent of just yet another geek trying to point out. Well, actually. I think what you mean here is... <laughs> yeah, I had a, a joke today. I was talking to someone and I said, I think I'm going to... We, we have this, you know, we play the band name game and I said, I've got it. I'm going to name my new band Pedantic, but I'm going to misspell it just to drive people insane. Well, sadly, that joke may be lost on a lot of people nowadays anyway. If you look at some of the Twitter <laughs> tweets and other misspellings. That makes it all the more delicious <laughs> to me. So you also, I'd also like to cover some of your experience with Datomic. You gave a presentation at Strange Loop talking about using Datomic in the real world. And you've used mm-hmm. it there with RoomKey, and it sounded like a couple of other projects you had done some Datomic work with? That's right. Yeah, I unfortunately am only able to talk about the RoomKey one. This is one of the bummers. One of the few bummers of working at uh, Cognitech is, as a consultant, you get to do a lot of really great stuff, and we'd love to show it to everybody, but the customers very, very understandably do not necessarily want us to do that. RoomKey is almost unique in being very willing to talk about what they're doing and letting us and letting us show it. And they've been super awesome partners in that respect. But yeah, I gave a talk at Strangeloop. It was a, a discussion of a, the system that I had written for RoomKey. It was an event capture system. And the, But the main theme of the talk, and it's available online now, and I don't know if you have show notes or not, but um, well, I'll get you a link if, uh, if you can't find it for the, for the presentation. The main thrust of the talk was talking about how the datomic indexes are 
uh, set up, I, I am actually of the opinion that if you cover the datomic architecture, so, you know, if anybody's seen anything about it, you know that um, there's actually uh, three pieces. There's a storage engine. There is the transactor, which is the place that you send writes to and write coordination happens. And then there's the peers, which are actually the machines that your application is running on. And you can have a lot of those, and that's actually where query runs. So query is local to your application. So if you understand the architecture, like how things are spread out, and you understand the data model, and the data model is that Datomic is a, an EAVT uh, tuple store. So it's entity attribute value time, which is kind of like the RDF model of subject predicate object, but with time. And if you understand the data model, then if you additionally understand indexes, which are how Datomic stores that information in storage and retrieves it and organizes it for retrieval rather, then I think actually understanding those things, which doesn't take too much because it is a simple model in the in the Hickeyan sense of simple, then um, a lot of things fall out of that. So, And I feel like indexing was one of the things that's a bit underserved by the documentation at present. So I wanted to talk about it. Because if you, like I say, if you understand it, there's a bunch of stuff that falls out. Everything from understanding how to optimize queries to even how restore and backup work and, and also to how to make your write performance higher. So, you know, it's just, it, like I said, I think it was a bit of an underserved uh, underserved topic, and I was really happy to get a chance to to talk about it at Strange Loop. So, yeah, that's that. That was that was fun, actually. Yeah, I enjoyed your presentation. I gave it another Thanks. whirl on InfoQ just to make sure that it would cover some topics that I might have some questions for you. So, mm-hmm. I guess let's take a step back for anybody who doesn't know of Datomic. So, the basic difference is it's a database. I guess the profound difference is it's a database that accounts for time and keeps track of time with events. Right. So, the, I mean, the, the, the idea is everything that you do to Datomic, you write down when you did it, and you keep that fact. So, you might say there's a, it's not a row, but we would call it an entity in Datomic that represents Stephen. Steve, you go by Steve or Stephen? Actually, you go by Proctor, but Stephen, yeah. Oh, you go by Proctor. Okay, Proctor. So, there's a, so there's a, <laughs> That's fine. Anyway, um, so there's an entity in the database that says, you know, this is, an, this is the thing that's going to keep track of all the things we know about Proctor. And you might say lives in, I don't know where you are, Houston? Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Dallas-Fort Worth. Oh, my goodness. That's like a, car, that's like a grave sin to confuse those two, isn't it? Uh, for, for some people, it is. But <laughs> I think that's more inside Texas. Outside, it's like all right, a, okay. one of the big cities in Texas. All right, okay. So, you're, so you might say, you know, lives in Dallas-Fort Worth. So we would we would record that fact, and we would record when the database learned it. So today at you know two thirty five p.m. And then later, if we wanted to say something different about where Proctor lives, we would say you know Proctor lives, and maybe you move to where I grew up, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so in a, other databases, what you would do is you would walk up and essentially take the eraser on your pencil and rub out Houston. And instead, write in, uh, I said Houston again, Dallas, and instead uh, write in Minneapolis. And as a result, the fact that you ever lived in Dallas is lost, right? You'll hear some people refer to this as place-oriented programming, like there's a place where we record that fact. So Datomic takes a different approach, wherein we would just add another fact to the database, which is that at 2.36, we learned that Proctor lives in Minneapolis. Now we have both facts. And we can compare them based on time to see which one is the newer. And so for the types of queries where we're only concerned with the most recent version of a fact, 
the information is stored stored efficiently to give you that. But for other types of queries where we want to go back and see, well, you know, where are all the places that Proctor has lived? We're, we're able to do that. You can even record the the deletion, I'm using air quotes again, of information by using a special type of fact that says we no longer know where Proctor lives. We call that a retraction. But that's something else that we add to the database so that we still have the previous facts. So, oh, it looks like, you know, at, at one point in time, we knew that Proctor lived in Houston. At a later point in time, we found out that he lives in Minneapolis. And these days, we don't actually know where he lives, but we do have all of the previous facts about where he lives. And again, it's organized so that you have efficient access to the most recent assertions about a particular thing. So that's kind of how Datomic keeps track of, of time is just by being, in essence, a append-only database. Yeah, so which if you've I've had to kind of work with other tables where you have audit log tables, which because databases don't give you that, you have to do a lot of headache to get around and track that information yourself and make sure you're storing it accurately, which usually winds right. up being the whole row as well instead of just the fact that changed because that's not easy to track. That's right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because in a we'll call them rectangular database. The unit of granularity is essentially the row. Datomic is more fine-grained in that the unit of um, information is the datum, which is, you can think of it as a cell, right? It's the intersection of some thing we're talking about, which Datomic would term an entity, would typically be a row in a, in a uh, rectangular database, some attribute, which would be a column, you know, that would be like um, where the person lives, and then the actual value, so that's the intersection, but also the time, right? So, and the other thing is, the other thing that's different about Datomic from, like I say, rectangular databases is that, although less different, I think, than the time model, is that one of the values that a datum can have is a reference to another entity. And so it's also effectively a graph database because the query language that it ships with called Datalog has a convenient syntax for traversing those relationships. So if I was going to record that Proctor lived in Minneapolis, I could actually make that instead of just, you know, putting in M-I-N-N-E-A-P-O-L-I-S for the, for the value of where you live. I could instead say, well, Proctor lives someplace, and the value of that is a reference to the entity in the database that tracks everything that we have ever known about Minneapolis. And so now that's a graph. And one of the nice things is that the graph relationships are traversable in both directions. So that I could efficiently get not only from the Proctor entity to where he lives, but also from Minneapolis to all the people that either live there or have ever lived there, depending on whether I'm looking at current values or the history. Yeah, that's one of the things that sounded awesome about Datomic when, when I was first hearing about it and looking at it was just the ability to track all that stuff and treat everything as independent facts that you can then assemble and re- likely report on in many different ways just because it's not tied to a specific, I guess, a specific row in a table in that context, whereas it can mean many different things as long as it's hooked up to that relation correctly. Yeah, I mean, the challenge, as always, is modeling. I mean, that's true of any, any database is that you need to have, you know, the right the right information model. It, it's a very flexible model. So, so there's lots of ways to do things. And, you know, you want to pick a way that is going to fit what you need to use it for. But I have found that to be an approachable task. And uh, I, I, I quite enjoy working with it. I mean, you know, one of the nice things is that it has a, a native closure API, although it also has a, a Java API, so it's accessible from any JVM language, and a REST interface if you want to come at it from other languages. But, you know, it's it's got a nice story for closure, partly because it's got a similar philosophy. I mean, the, the whole idea of the database as being 
an immutable value, right? Because you can look at the database and go, well, it's this accumulating sequence of facts, but they're all time-stamped. And so if I just kind of look at the database and say, don't consider anything after time 240, that, that's never going to change, right? Because th- there's only data getting added after that. And that's, in fact, how you work with Datomic is to, is to look at it at a point in time, which is really, really, really nice. I mean, if, you, if, you, if, if people like working with immutable collections where, you know, no matter how many threads are partying in the system, stuff isn't changing up underneath them, that has the same benefits and arguably to an even greater extent in the database world, just because there's generally more concurrency in a big database-backed system than there is within a single process. So uh, it's been super fun to work with. You know, I enjoy learning new things, but I also have, as I've learned more, have found it to be very logically organized and very simple. This is, again, one of the reasons I wanted to talk as strangely about indexes is because I like that I can keep the concepts in Datomic in my head and make sense out of what's going on. So that's been, that's been a real benefit for me. You mentioned modeling the uh, data. Have you noticed that it completely changes the way you try and model your data as opposed to using uh, RDBMS or a different NoSQL store? And kind of how does that kind of compare when you would model it using other databases when you had to interact with that? Well, I mean, I, I guess I would say that Datomic, like any data store, has its its notion of what data modeling can be. Datomic's notion is different and therefore the way that you employ it is different. I mean, for instance, if I was going to use a, uh, a store that was not time aware, then I would have to explicitly model time. Whereas if I'm using Datomic and I want that capability, then I don't have to because it's built in. And I think you could take it the other way. You could say things like compound keys, right? Compound indexes. Datomic does not currently support compound indexes. And so if you have a query that you want to do that inherently requires a compound index, then you have to find a way to do to address whatever need is driving that in Datomic. Whereas if you were using something else, you wouldn't have to. So it's it's it's. I mean, the answer is yes. It absolutely changes the way that you model data because no matter what data store you're working with, you have to work with what you're given. I will say that I have found Datomic to be quite flexible, and so that I I I feel like the solutions that I come up with are, you know, relatively compact. Like there's not a lot of stuff in the models that I come up with that is not about capturing the information, but is about, you know, serving the needs of the database or whatever. So, I, you know, I mean, that's a little squishy, but that, that it feels that way to me. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Kind of getting into, and I think you t- kind of touched on it, was how easy it was to change your thinking about the way that you model data. And Oh, it was not easy. <laughs> I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to jump on you there, but I don't get me wrong. I, it was uh, it was an adjustment. I mean, the same way that when I came to Closure and said, oh, I, I mean, especially the functional aspect. To be honest with you, like I came to Closure and as a C sharp guy, it was a shift from from uh, object oriented to to functional, from you know mutable everything to non mutable. It was a shift from uh, Algol family language to a Lisp family language. And out of all those things, the functional aspect was the biggest shift for me. And you know the same was really true with Datomic. It was it was you know I I have never been like a database specialist, but you know I've worked with databases and primarily with relational databases, especially SQL Server. And it was a it was a shift, and it took me it took me a while to come around to the point where I could start thinking in the way that Datomic works. But but I will say that. That, you know, it, it is approachable. Like it, it's always hard when you're out in the wilderness and trying to discover things from first principles. But the documentation is improving. I really do hope that my strange loop presentation or 
um, whatever other documentation gets written about indexes will be helpful because I do feel that that is kind of the third piece of the puzzle. And that if you understand indexes, I know I've said this like four times now, I hope you'll excuse me, that you do actually have a model for how datomic works that you can that you can leverage. So I, I think I think that's gotten a lot better and will continue to improve as the product matures. Yeah, I was didn't mean to imply that it was easy, just the ease of that transition, be it easy or hard. It felt it felt it felt like a significant effort for me at the time. Have you gone back and done any relational databases or other databases since Datomic, or have you been strictly Datomic since? Uh, no, actually, most recently, so I haven't done, uh, I haven't gone back and done relational, but I have gone, and um, right now I'm working on a system that uses Amazon's DynamoDB, which is a key value store. So that's been that's been pretty interesting on a number of dimensions, not least of which is that Datomic can store its data in Dynamo. So I've, I've, and in fact, that's the way that I usually use it is that Datomic puts its its data that it manages into Dynamo. And so it's given me an appreciation for some of the things that Datomic does for you in order to make working with uh, Dynamo easier. I didn't know as well as if you also kind of took some of those lessons learned from Datomic and tried to apply them back and kind of found yourself going back and saying, well, I'd really like to use this. Kind of like if you had to jump back into C Sharp. After doing Clojure, you'd probably take advantage of Link a whole lot more than you might have beforehand. It, it's funny that you say that. I was actually on a project, and it was at Microsoft where I was using C Sharp, whatever the version was that Link came out, and I think it might have been 2.0. And you know, I was writing code, and I was really getting into Link and using it. Thinking back, it doesn't feel like more than I should have, but certainly a lot. And wrote this code, and I was working with another friend of mine who was in a similar place. And actually, my my colleague uh, Tim Ewald, who is also a um, Cognitech these days. And we wrote a bunch of code, and we handed it off the team, and they're like, "Your code is really weird, guys," because we were using, you know, these um, honestly more advanced concepts, and they hadn't really been exposed to them yet. So, yeah, I mean, there's no question that if I went back to to C sharp, I would absolutely. I mean, probably the very first thing I would do is is go, "Oh, is there a persistent immutable collection anywhere that I can just use? Because a good implementation, because going back to mutable everything would be really quite painful." And then, and then, of course, as you say, I would use I would use Link all over the place. Yeah, I didn't know if you found yourself doing that kind of thing with the DynamoDB or any of the other databases after kind of messing with Datomic and its view of how data should be stored. Yeah, it's not the the thing with Dynamo is it would be fairly difficult to do that because its its view of data is very very limited, uh, and especially around query. As compared to something like something like Datomic or or any other you know more capable database, I mean Dynamo is fantastic in the sense of so it's it's big cell. The reason you would want to use it, and the reason we're using it, is it has guaranteed throughput, which is elastic. So you can say, I want to reserve the right to be able to do a thousand writes per second, and it will absolutely guarantee that you can do a thousand writes per second. And if you want to pay ten times as much, it'll guarantee that you can do ten thousand writes per second, which is amazing it's it's and with very low latency by the way so it's absolutely amazing for that but as a result you get this pretty limited data model i mean you have tables and you you have to predefine the index the index the uh, sorry the the columns that are the keys for the table and it's not it's not really a table in the rectangular sense it's a it's a key value store where every item which would be the closest uh, analog to rows has to have a predefined primary key 
and optionally a predefined what they call range key. And the combination of primary key and range key has to be unique. And then you can have any, any number of other attributes uh, attached to that item. I mean, it, it can be sparse, so you can have, you know, first name in one item and, and, not, and not in another, and last name in that item, and so forth and so on. But it's really, really limited. I mean, when you query, your choices are essentially, you know, look up already knowing the, you know, find me the items that have exactly this primary key, or scan every item in the table. And I'm oversimplifying a bit, but, you know, that's that's pretty limiting. I mean, you know, you wind up, if you wanted to have, for example, something that forms a graph, like we talked about with the, keep, you know, find me all the people that live in, in Minnesota, it, once you go beyond a certain fairly low threshold of complexity, I mean, you're doing a lot of work to be able to leverage Dynamo in that situation. It, it happens to work for the thing I'm working on, but, but it, was, it was not easy to kind of wriggle around and figure out how we were going to pull off our performance requirements and still be able to query against the data that we were storing, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd like to jump tracks a little bit. And I believe you mentioned you on a pre- on one of your podcasts that you kind of work in the Windows environment. Clojure yep. seems to be known for using a Linux OS ten environment for a lot of its users. That's or that's where a lot of the publicity sounds to come from. How do you find yep. the environment? How was the environment switch and currently and getting in? I guess getting into it and currently of working in Clojure on a Windows environment for any of those people who may be interested in Clojure but afraid that they have to work on a Linux system or a Mac system if they're unfamiliar with those systems. Yeah, you definitely don't have to work on Linux or Mac. You absolutely can be successful working in Clojure on, on Windows. And the, the main reason for that is that at, at some level, Clojure is just another Java library. I mean, it's Clojure technically is just a jar. And Java works great on Windows. There's nothing about Java that's 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 you know windows hostile that said tooling the closure specific tooling that exists in the world is to some degree second class when it comes to windows and so you know you're going to have less examples of the things you know i mean like when you run into a problem that is windows specific you're less likely to find easily find a solution than you would be if you're running on say a mac just it's just the it's just the demographics of the people you use in closure more of them as you say are using linux and uh, linux and, and mac os os x but, but it's totally doable. I do it every single day. My personal route for doing it is I run Sigwin. Partly that's because, I don't know if you're familiar with Sigwin, but Sigwin is a, um, a POSIX environment for Windows. And so you get, you know, a bash shell and you get LS and grep and all the usual Unixy type tools running in the Windows environment. And, you know, that helps a bit. It also helps me not get confused because universally, everything that I've worked on in Clojure has deployed to a Linux environment. I mean, that just is where the customers that we have are running their stuff is on is on Linux boxes out in the world. And so, you know, that means that I'm working on Linux boxes and I'm pairing with people who are using Linux or OS X. And so it gives me an environment where I, there's a little bit of less context switch. It's not without challenges. For example, in a Sigwin shell, you know, paths are Unix-style paths. So, you know, forward slashes and the root is not something but slash something but when you're invoking java processes java from within sigwin java itself when you install a windows is a windows process and so it understands paths using the windows syntax 
Um, so it's, you know, C colon slash something, something, something. And so, you know, you get a few places like that where there's a little bit of friction. But, you know, for the most part, I mean, I run Datomic on Windows. You know, I, all the, I run Line again and all the standard tooling. I run Emacs under Sigwin, but I've run it under Windows native build as well. So it, it's, it's doable. You're cutting against the grain a little bit. There's really, you know, I could not with a straight face say that the most straightforward way to do things is to run, is to run in Windows. I don't think that's the case. One other approach that I've taken is to run in a Linux uh, virtual machine using VirtualBox, and then I will run an X server on my Windows machine, SSH into the virtual machine, which is just running on my machine, and then I can run programs, GUI programs, on the Linux machine, but they show up as top-level Windows in, win in my Windows host environment. So I can actually like alt-tab to an Emacs that is a real Linux Emacs, and Everything that I'm doing in it is happening on the Linux machine, but I'm still in my um, my Windows environment, which you know is nice. I mean, there I, I I like Windows for a couple things. The main one for me these days is Skype. Although Skype on OS X is pretty good, Skype is a crucial application for me. It does not run awesome Linux. I have Intel hardware, so unless I want to do a very expensive replacement and move to like Mac hardware, my choices are Windows and Linux, and given that I can get by just fine in Clojure under Windows, and that this particular machine that I have, I've never successfully been able to run it on the hardware that I have using Linux, then Windows is a, is a good solution for me. Like I say, you have options, and, and it can be made to work without too much trouble. So it's nothing to be scared of necessarily if you're on the Windows environment trying to go Clojure. It's come up a lot versus some of the, yeah, yeah. Some of the other languages which you've heard about probably... From what I heard, Ruby at for a long time. If you were Windows, you were you were lucky to be a second class citizen and get some of the environments there up and running. Yeah, although I think Ruby, uh, I think Ruby is actually in a decent place now. I think it might lag a little bit. I actually do a little teeny tiny bit of Ruby work, and I think it was very easy for me to get Ruby one nine three running fairly recently. If you wanted to go beyond that, I don't. I didn't look into it far enough to see whether the Windows side had progressed that much. But, but yeah, it, I, I would echo what you're saying, which is, it is totally doable. It is not horrendous, but it is, you know, you should anticipate that it's going to be. I don't. I'll put a random number on it. Ten percent harder than if you just had like a Mac box and you said, you know, brew install line again or whatever. As well, you do a podcast as we touched on at the beginning. Is there some highlights of that that you found from doing that podcast that were just stood out that you want people to go know about? Oh wow, boy, you're putting me on the spot, Proctor. Pick a pick a favorite. <laughs> Not necessarily a favorite, but just for those who haven't checked out the Think Relevance or slash Cognicast now, that there's some things that may be hot topics for that people who haven't heard your podcast to go check out first before they go listen to all of them. Uh, well, it's sure. Oh, I um, I'm pretty happy with all the episodes. There's no, there hasn't been an episode where I've been like, boy, I wish we wouldn't have published that. And in fact, my usual reaction when I listen to it in the car later is, is wow, that guest was really interesting. And I hope it's not bragging to say that. That's that's me intending to compliment the guests, not anything about my about my effort. But um, yeah, I, you know, the most recent episode is one that I thought was really great. It was episode 46 with Maggie Litton, who is one of our project managers. And I just thought it was great. She had really interesting things to say about project management, about something called Lacanian psychoanalysis and how it applies to software development. Super interesting stuff. 
I'm a huge fan of anything that Mike Nygaard has to say. I can't remember the episode number, but that would be like 34 or something like that. But uh, honestly, I, I really would not feel bad at all about recommending that somebody just pick a random one and listen. Some of them, I think the one thing you could say is that some of them are more technical. Like, for example, we had Rich on talking about CoreySync, and that's obviously very closure-specific, very about one particular technology. Whereas, you know, if we talk to someone like Maggie, that stuff is broader because everybody does, you know, project management or is, is affected by project management and psychology. Not everyone is necessarily doing CoreySync. So, you know, some of the episodes have a bit broader appeal, but I can't think of anything where I'd be like, you know, that one was our crowning jewel. Yeah. How have you found some of your epiphanies coming through listening to those podcasts and doing them that touching on subjects you would have never thought of? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing for me is, you know, when, when I listen to the show, my takeaway from it is the show is better the less that I say, right? The more that I listen and let the guest say what they have to say, I think that's better. Like, I don't, I, I think there's a, it's a rare occasion where me interrupting to offer my perspective about the thing they're talking about is, is a vast improvement on what was already happening. Is that the sort of thing you're asking me, or was that a different question? I just wasn't sure if there were kind of any epiphanies that you had. Because one of the things I'm doing with this is I'd love to have these conversations and be able to record them to go back in later on, see what I could pick out, as well as share them for everybody else to get through. So I didn't know if there were any kind of gems that you thought, you're like, wow, I'm really glad I recorded that, because that I, I'm going to have to go back and record those. And part of this is me oh, getting yeah, out I- as a fanboy of your show. <laughs> kind of wanting your well, perspective as the host. Well, first of all, thanks for listening. I really, really appreciate that uh, that you like the show. That's awesome to hear. But yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm right there with you, man. I mean, you, you know, the reason I started doing the show is, and I've said this before, is that we would have conversations in the hallways at Cognitech or, you know, online, the virtual hallways. And I'd be like, well, that was awesome. And I had done a teeny bit of podcasting before with my friend, Tim. I mentioned his name earlier. Uh, we had a show called Design Implementation. We did like three episodes and we gave up. But it was like, yeah, you know what? I talked to Tim all the time. I mean, all the time. And we would have these conversations. I'd be like, what a bummer that we didn't record that because it was great. And so that was the motivation for doing the show was like, look around, you know, pick just about anybody that, that I work with or come into contact with. And it's like, we, if I just had that person talk, it would be interesting to listen to. And so, I, yeah, right there with you. I mean, in, you know, just examples from, from recent shows. I mentioned Maggie one. She said all sorts of great stuff about Lacanian psychoanalysis, as I mentioned, about, you know, about feminism, about the term project manager, which is really interesting, her perspective on kind of how that term has to be taken back because it actually has slight negative connotation a lot of times right now and how that doesn't have to be that way that was super cool uh when reed draper was on the show before that 45 you know we talked about i asked him i said so you're a big fan of haskell you're a big fan of erlang why would i want to go and learn those languages and you know he gave an answer that i was like okay yep i gotta go learn those languages i mean i don't know when i'm gonna do it but it's absolutely on my list because here is a person very very smart person who's making a good case for why it'll make my brain better. So there's been just a moment like that on pretty much every show, I think. Awesome. So I guess we're close to wrapping up. Try and keep these shows around an hour, just because that way people have their commute that's either an hour or 30 minutes, and they can decide to listen to it at double speed. 
So it gets right. to try and find a nice balance there. Is there anything you would like to plug upcoming appearances, either with relevance on your own at some of the user groups? Because I believe you're involved in the DC user group. Yes, I am involved in the DC user group. When is this going to uh, air? I'd like to get it out within the next week or two. But I've, okay. as I mentioned on the pre-call, I've got to mess with some hosting stuff because my original hosting wasn't quite what I was expecting uh, had it with a megabyte upload limit for where I was going to be putting these shows. So. Well, believe me, you have you have my entire sympathy when it comes to dealing with production issues because that's how I spend a significant portion of my twenty percent time is on making. The, well, I have a lot of help, but you know, it's still a fair amount of time. Um, yeah, I don't have any talks or whatever that I that I'm doing on the 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 uh, blog, the thinkrelevance.com/blog. There's a post every month called "Where to Find Relevancers" or "Where to Find Cognitex." I guess it would be these days. So if people are looking for where we're going to be and what we're going to be doing, that's uh, always a good place to check. I will. Gen- I generally try to go to um, at least one of the DC Closure Meetup, which is at closuredc.org, I believe, or is it meetup.com? Anyway, we'll put the link in. Or the rest in Closure Hack Night. There's actually three local groups here that are closure uh, groups. One is in Reston, which is sort of west of uh, DC. One is in DC itself, or technically Alexandria, which is very close to DC, and, and one in Baltimore that I haven't made it out to. So there's lots of good options, which is nice because, you know, if you live in this area and you have to drive at 6 o'clock to any place more than about 10 miles away, it's like, blah. So, uh, yeah, I don't have anything specific, but um, the, the blog is certainly a good place to keep track of where of what we as a company are up to. Any projects that you're involved with, I guess, on your own that you can talk about? Sure. <laughs> How much time do we have again? <laughs> um, yeah, the one I, I will mention a couple. Well, I'll mention one. Um, the other one I'm, I'm still kind of baking, although it's 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 on my GitHub if people want to poke around. I just released today, in fact, version zero four one of a library I have written called DIN D Y N N E, which is an audio processing library written in Closure. It lets you do things like load up an MP3, chop it into pieces, mix them, crossfade, whatever. I actually use that. I wrote it <laughs> in a fit of total obsession that lasted several weeks. I wrote it to help me produce the podcast. So now when I have the podcast, if like you and I were to do a podcast, I would record, I would get an interview file. You know, we do music at the beginning of the show. I would grab those. I'd throw all that stuff in a directory. i write an Eden file, and then i point a tool at it, and it uses DIN to mix everything together and to produce the MP3, and it has saved me probably almost as much time as I've put into it at this point, which is to say a lot. So it's, that's been super cool. And I just today pushed out version 041, which is API compatible. So there's no changes from a programming perspective, but it's now all built on top of core async. So paradigm is that you have you know, things like generators, which would be a function called read sound that will give you back a, a concept called a sound. And then you can take that sound and pass it to other functions like trim or gain or mix and get new sounds. And so you build this kind of network of processing. And then at, at the other end, you pull it out and either play it or save it. And now all of those individual processing steps run on their own thread and use core async channels to deliver chunks of sound between them. So as a result, the work is now spread out over multiple threads and on my multi-core machine I think I made it it so now I went from being able to process a one-hour show in about 30 seconds to being able to process a one-hour show in about 20 seconds so it was a nice a nice speed up by using core async Um, and I don't know if you're doing sound or not but it is I think a reasonably not 
terrible use of core async. So if people were look, looking at kind of a more a more complicated, more involved example of how you would use core async to solve a problem, you know, they might want to check out the source code. Sounds awesome. Plus, the core async thing sounds like it's definitely something to check out. Any other recommendations in general you think anybody listening to this would appreciate that you would like to throw out? I know you mentioned out of the tar pit. Is there any other things that you may just... of your own or things you think people should know about? Kind of giving you another little pulpit here. Uh, yeah, well, I definitely... So I, I don't know what the schedule is, but there were two talks at the Closure Conj, which was in November, that are... There, there were a lot of good talks, no question, but there were two in, that were standouts. One was by the, at this point, often mentioned Tim Ewald, which was amazing. I've known him for well, 15 years, and it was, and he's a good speaker a- anytime. This was the best talk I've ever seen him give. And it was, I think, think something that has super broad appeal. Like, you could watch it whether you are not even a programmer. You could, you could watch it and get something out of it. And ditto for another colleague of mine, Russ Olson. They were both just excellent, excellent talks. When they, when they come out, people should absolutely watch them. So uh, that, that's, uh, again, I wish it were, it were out now so we could post a URL. But hopefully they'll be out soon and then uh, people can check them out. Sounds good. Where can people find you online if they would like to follow you or stalk you or get in contact with you? <laughs> well, I, I'm uh, I'm Craig Andera on Twitter. That's C-R-A-I-G-A-N-D-E-R-A. Uh, that's a good place to locate me. And then if you go to Cognitech.com, uh, actually, I don't think we have team pages up on Cognitech yet. We're you know we're a busy, busy company, and the the new website does not yet have everything from Thinkrelevance pulled over. But if you go to Thinkrelevance.com and click on Team. Um, that's a good place to start because that's got links to my GitHub and my Twitter and all the other various things. So Sounds good. Cool. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, I would like to thank Craig Andera for giving his time to me- for joining me today. It was a pleasure talking Thanks with you, Thanks for having Craig. me. Oh, my pleasure. I was, I, I'm looking forward to listening to your show. That sounds like it's going to be quite interesting. Thank you. Until next time, okay. this has been Functional Geekery.